Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome to the Vegas Gang podcast for April 18th, 2011. The Vegas Gang is a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. Let me go around the table and introduce the guys. We have Mr. Jeff Simpson, author of the ever-insightful Simpson on Vegas column over on Two-Way Hard 3. Welcome, Jeff. Greetings, folks. Chuck Monster, editor-in-chief and head stickman at VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Hunter, I think that uh, I would like to offer a motion to the board. Yeah. That uh, we change the name of this podcast to the Two Way Hard Three Podcast Plus Chuck. Two Way Hard Three Plus One. <laughs> um, is editor in chief a valid designation for your title, or? And uh, head stickman works. Pretty okay, good. and and uh, Dr. Dave Schwartz, uh, the director of UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hey there. My name is Hunter Hillegas. I'm over at RateVegas.com. Uh, we don't really have any announcements today, so we're just going to roll into it. There's a couple of stories. Um, we're going to start talking about internet poker, um, which uh, was a big story on Friday. Um, and it's been a story in Nevada over the past few months as Nevada and other states have uh, debated the legalization of internet poker. Um, Jeff, I know you've been writing about this. You've written a couple columns on it. And then on, on Friday, we saw the federal government take action against several of these sites by seizing domain names and uh, indicting some of the folks that uh, own and, and run them. Can you give us a quick overview as far as what happened on Friday? Well, the DOJ and specifically the uh – the office in southern New York, um, which really means you know New York City and uh, you know close by areas of New York, um, they released um, an indictment that had been sealed and actually made um, in March um, that that uh, charged a number of people at the tops of the three biggest um, online poker sites that allow bets from the U.S. Plus, um, with they charge those people with um, violating the UIGEA, the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, passed in 2006 to um, sort of uh, – it made it illegal for people to fund and for sites to facilitate funding – um, and for banks to actually fund um, accounts that are related to online gambling. And they also charge them with operating an illegal gambling site. site. Um, and the, they also, with these indictments, um, charge a number of people who helped you know, set up um, either bank accounts or actually ran banks that helped these poker sites get money and pay out money to folks in the United States violating the law. Right. So I'll, I'll just, you know, up top, I'll say I don't play internet poker. So um, personally, my exposure to these sites is fairly limited, but um, I, I have read about this quite a bit. And, and not to debate sort of maybe the larger issue of whether or not poker should be legal in, in the United States. It seems like at least from my reading of this, that these guys 
unless I'm misreading the original law, it seems like there's some pretty clear indications that they may actually have uh, have violated that uh, that act. I mean, it, they were. It seemed like they were almost flaunting the rules and just assuming that you know they never were going to get tagged. Is the, am I off base with saying that something like that? No, I think they had they well they had legal advice saying that um, they weren't violating U.S. law when it came to just operating an online poker site, and it's sort of a complicated, tortured argument. Um, but the difference is that with the UIGEA. Um, and its rules about funding. Um, it's it's hard to see um, how some of these sites are going to be able to get um, off with you know to avoid um, conviction um, on with some of the machinations they did to be able to make sure people could still get money into and out of their accounts. Um, the UIGEA is is a funding act um, and. But I think that there is a valid argument that the existing federal law prior to UIGEA that still also continues, whether it's the Wire Act and some other some other laws that could be applied conceivably to internet poker, that it may not apply. And uh, that's be, you know one of the things is. Um, Certainly, the internet wasn't even around in 1961, so there's question, how does it apply? I think that uh, um, whether poker is a gambling, a game, a game that's decided primarily by chance or by skill, that is certainly an issue that poker people will argue. Um, but the UIGEA violations, I think, are uh, going to be tougher for them to avoid conviction for. I'm I'm curious, and and you know Jeff or or Chuck or Dave, if any of you guys know, I I was just thinking today as I was sort of putting together the links for the show, wondering how did they pick these three sites to go after? They're the biggest sites that um, they're called U.S. facing. It means that they're none of these online sites are based in the United States, although right. certainly some of them have U.S. Um, you know, some share of U- U.S. ownership, even though that's usually not publicly acknowledged. But these are these are companies, the three biggest companies that continue to take continued to take bets from the U.S. poker play from the U.S. after UIGEA, pre UIGEA, party poker was the biggest, and then these three were you know ranked just behind. Party Poker. Party Poker left the market. Poker Stars took over the number one spot with Full Tilt in second. And then the combination of, of the, it's called Serious Network, and that's Ultimate Bet and Absolute Poker. Those two sites together are, are, are really the same entity. And uh, they, um, I think, are the third in the U.S. But there are still sites that continue to operate in the United States. People who complain that they can't play online poker are are, are really wrong. But there's no sites that offer you know you know tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of players at a time like these big sites did. Um, Bodog still offers online poker. Um, Cake poker. Um, Doyle's Room. There are other sites that people could still play on right now, um, 
and uh, the U.S. government considers those sites to be operating illegally as well. But they chose the the big three to target. Uh, presumably, if they're able to gain convictions here, they would move their uh, attention to smaller violators. It's you know it's interesting because we we had been discussing this issue as it pertains to Nevada quite a bit. I know, like I said, Jeff, you'd written a few things. Chuck, you posted about this when when Win and um, Hoochajigger did their little arrangement. Um, it, it was definitely heating up. This seemed like it was going to move you know move sort of out of the shadows, or at least people were talking about it, and it was a, it was an issue. It was part of the whole public discourse. But man, these Nevada companies couldn't have dropped this faster than uh, a hot. I mean, literally, um, all of those agreements were severed, as far as I know. I mean, I think the win the win statement was like the agreement has expired. <laughs> it's like okay, well, you made the agreement like four weeks ago. Um, well, I remember Dave did a post. I think he he really was the um, first person in the local blogosphere to write about AB two fifty eight, um, and I read his post and looked at the and looked at the law um, filed with the legislature, and I was, I was sort of shocked at how it so obviously had been designed in a way to, you know, sort of help poker stars and Full Tilt and, you know, these other companies that take bets from the U.S. You know, it said that, that the, the fact that they had done so could not be held against them in a in a regulatory licensing hearing and and that kind of a provision in a law is just way out of left field totally abnormal and so that's why I followed up when David written I followed up with a a, um, a column saying you know this is this is never going to get by um, Nevada regulators and the governor and sure enough the governor then came out and you know sort of specified that he that it would bring Nevada um, you know ba- a bad name with the federal government and you know he said the federal government should regulate first but he specifically cited that that provision that was meant to favor the online operators John Ralston has done some great reporting recently um, Howard Stutz at the RJ as well sort of showing how poker stars papered the legislature 48 out of 63 Nevada legislatures legislators received con- political contributions ranging to over 30,000 bucks which is really really big here in you know our relatively small state um you know 48 out of 63 that's in that's just insane um that that many legislators took money um the argument is that it violates federal law for the co- contributors um a foreign based operation to contribute to a state political race. So, you know, we're, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. But certainly in Nevada governmental circles, everyone who took money um, gets a black eye. Um, and I think even Sandoval's campaign, Governor Brian Sandoval's campaign took money um, a week or two ago. They returned it. Um, but his black eye will be offset by the strong stance he took against the bill's provision that favored poker stars and others. And I think Sandoval is going to come out of this looking good. And almost every legislator that accepted the money, and in particular the ones who tried to push through the bill and who took junket, who uh, took junkets paid for by these sites, they're going to come out looking bad. And there could be legal ramifications. Right now, you know, that has not been shown definitively, but 
Um, you know, this is it, it makes these online poker sites look bad that they would, you know, try and, you know, it looks like they were trying to buy a bill um, here in Nevada. So that makes them look very, very bad. So, I'm going to slightly disagree with that or add on to it. You know, I think it's interesting because it also points out what role the Nevada companies have in politics here. And certainly the Nevada casino companies have, have a pretty big role. And they are constantly, you know, maneuvering different pieces of legislation and things like that. It'd be interesting to see where the breakdown is for, let's say, how people vote on the lottery and what kind of contributions they've taken. I, yeah, I just think that's kind of that's something to point out. Well, the difference would be, I mean, you know, almost any politics in the United States, there can be a cash relationship, um, contributions or, you know, funding of second parties that, you know, help voter drives or whatever. And that's all dirty. And we all understand that. The difference is that this is a foreign operation. Um, so that could violate the federal law that um, prohibits funding for foreign operations to fund federal, state, or local um, political activity. And so I'm not saying that, you know, I mean, certainly our there's all kinds of contributions that wash through the political system that have a direct or indirect corrupting influence. And I don't disagree with you at all. I just think that this is not just a matter of degree. It's a different kind of problem if it's a foreign, a foreign business that's trying to interfere in U.S. politics with their contributions. That may violate federal law, and it may make those politicians who accepted them – I mean, certainly they're all going to be rushing to give that money back. But uh, I think that's, uh, that is a, a different kettle of fish entirely. I'm I'm curious yeah. what happens next. Uh what the impact is going to be. I mean, uh, you know, most of these sort of wide sweeping federal indictments that it takes quite a while for these things to be resolved, work their way through the legal system. So in the meantime, what's going to happen? Are we going to see um a large influx of uh players into um Nevada casinos to play in, you know, uh physical real poker rooms, brick and mortar poker rooms. Um, that, may, that may happen a little bit, but what you're going to see is a lot of people going to these alternate poker sites that continue to take bets from the US. They're going to grow exponentially. It may take a little while. The funding means for those sites may be constricted, but people can still get money into sites that will accept bets. You know, they may have to use Western Union, they may have to mail checks. Um, and you know, the people's uh, you know, the reliability of those sites certainly is not as high as those other ones, but you know the the reason people play online poker a lot of it is for convenience. You know, there's speculation that maybe this will help. You know, regular casino poker. I think it's at best for the poker rooms a wash. Um, they may get some additional business from people who who have been playing online, but on but on the other hand, that online play really boosted. Um, brick and mortar play, you know, a half a decade or more ago, actually almost a decade ago. And since then, people who learned to play online would get the courage up to go play in a card room. But the, you know, it, it could be that that will start cutting off other people's exposure to poker. Um, you know, people who don't live where there's card rooms and, and others. 
If I can jump in for a second, looking at the other prosecutions in the past, I think we're not going to see this even close to being resolved before 2013. Uh, in 1998, Jay Cohen and a bunch of people with uh, World Sports Exchange and a couple other other companies got indicted for violating the Wire Act. That didn't go to trial until 2000, and finally the appeals were exhausted in 2002 when he went to jail. Uh, 2007 is when the Gary Kaplan bet on sports indictments happened, and that was finally resolved in 2009. So, you know, we're probably looking at two years at least for this to go to trial, in which time I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the legislative landscape. I think that probably this will point out that, hey, there's a lot of people who really want to play poker online, and the casinos in Nevada, instead of trying to block it or hope for a federal solution and kind of hoping for these long shot things, should really look at how they can move the ball ahead and start this either on the state level, within states, or somehow start to move it ahead where we can actually start doing this legally in this, in this country and in Nevada. Um, World Series of Poker, is, is there a fallout on that event from this action? Well, that's Absolutely. really interesting because I, Go I, I got a question from uh, – one journalist that I was talking to saying, is it possible that a player who was betting with one of these sites didn't know it was illegal because they see it, you know, at the, at the World Series of Poker, you see these companies are pretty prominent and their teams are um, in the tournament. So um, yeah, I thought maybe that was a legitimate question. But definitely for at least eight years now, they've Harris and Caesars has just kind of looked the other way and really not – you know, hasn't looked at all the implications of, hey, you've got a lot of money coming into this from these online poker rooms. What does that mean? And what does that say about what you're saying about online poker? So it's been a very interesting relationship over the past eight years. And and that that relationship has changed over time. The regulators forced Harris to to stop having such a close relationship with the U.S.-facing sites like PokerStars and Full Tilt that were funding direct satellites into the tournament, um, and that cut registrations down over the last couple of years from their peak, I think, in 2006, the year Jamie Gold won. Um, you know, I, I think that the what, going back to what Dave said about intrastate um, gaming. Um, I, he, he had wrote, he wrote a post about the possibility for it, or maybe it was a comment on another um, on, on on one of my columns. But I think interstate is a possibility, just sort of as a placeholder um, for Nevada operators. Um, but the problem with interstate is that Nevada is a relatively small state with few players. Poker players are looking for a site to play on that affords them, you know, a range of, of game sizes, types of game. Um, it's hard to imagine that just an interstate poker site and, and or intra DC is going to have enough players playing to get, um, you know, the interest of many poker players. I mean, I, I may be wrong, but I, I have a feeling that the most interesting option for people in the United States you know, for players is going to just seek out these these sites that weren't targeted by indictment and that are going to continue to take bets from the United States. Um, you know, despite the logistical problems of getting money on and off, um, people are would rather play um, with a big group of players rather than a small group, as in an interstate model. That's true, and I think the real you know, I think what happens is maybe you do an interstate, and then next year. 
California is still facing a budget deficit and they say, hey, why don't we, you know, what if we cooperated with Nevada and we did a revenue sharing thing, kind of like race simulcasting, which has been going but on. But that, that would require a federal, that would require federal okay. And it's basically a simple amendment to uh, Ouija, which is just says, it just includes a carve out for states, you know, if you can do an intrastate, which is already in Ouija, there's already that carve out for intrastate, and also just include the, the phrase, from one state where it's legal to another state where it's legal, and they, I think there's, that basically there's, takes care of it. But it does take, um, you know, approval by the House, by the U.S. House, U.S. Senate, and a signature. Now, now, Reed could tack it on, um, conceivably, um, but you know there is entrenched opposition to any anything that could be called internet. Um, internet gambling. Um, I'm not. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a possibility. I think it is. I think it's very tough in this political climate. And if either Obama loses in 2012, or if the Senate turns Republican in 2012, I think it's a near impossibility. So it almost would have to happen in the next two years, or. Reed would have to maintain his major his majority leader status. Both things I think are pretty questionable. I, th- I think a lot of it too politically is just phrasing it the right way. You know, instead of saying we're going to have a massive expansion of gaming and have the federal government get involved in an unprecedented way in the regulation of online gaming and taxation of it, I would phrase it as a states' rights issue and say, hey, if people in California and Nevada want to play poker together why not let them do it online and let the you know this to me that would be the way to sell it but i'm not i, I don't disagree so. i think i think <laughs> you i think you're right it could be sold i i question whether a they'll do it and whether it would be successful but i think you're right that's probably a better sales pitch for it than saying uh you know we're going to we're going to dramatically alter the landscape i don't disagree but i still think it's an uphill battle it, it is, but it's just very frustrating to be sitting here in Nevada and hearing so many people talk about diversification and high-tech stuff, and here's something that's a little bit of a diversification, but it's still something that has a definite Nevada connection, and it just seems like both the industry and the political structure isn't really doing a lot to try to move this ahead. You know what? I mean, in 2001, a full decade ago, the legislature acted to you know, and mandated that the gaming commission consider um, whether children could be prevented from playing online, whether a, a site could determine where people were playing from, and if so, whether the federal government would allow internet gambling, and and then directed the gaming commission to you know start allowing Nevada casinos to begin offering. Um, internet gambling. Well, of course, the gaming commission, um, after some hearings and some, uh, study said, you know, at the time, they couldn't be that sure of, of what jurisdiction a person was playing from. They couldn't, they weren't confident in age verification. I think both those hurdles could be handled right now. But the big thing was the federal government and Additionally, 40, I think they said back then like 44, 45, something like that, states have provisions on their books, anti-gaming laws on their books that may be construed to also bar 
um, internet gambling from within that state. So there are a lot of legal roadblocks that still exist, but it's amazing that back 10 years ago, our state was trying to get in front on this issue, and nothing really has happened in the intervening 10 years to make me think that it's that much more likely that we're going to get something in the near future. Well, it's interesting because you can already place a bet on a BlackBerry anywhere in the state through Leroy's, but you can't use your computer to to play poker, which just says so much about how it's taking so long for the legislation and the regulation to catch up with where the technology is. And an even bigger carve-out is that you can right now from everywhere in the United States bet online on horse racing. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you can play, if you can bet on horses, you know, on, online, certainly you should be able to play poker online. Um, but it's that the horse industry got that carve out, um, you know, and, you know, I think that was about a decade ago as well. And, you know, if, and, and so now, um, it, it, poker and poker players, they're frustrated. And it's understandable why poker players are frustrated. But, um, you know, I have been saying for a long time, there's sort of a conspiracy of ignorance in the poker community. Players, um, some players may say, oh, I didn't know it was illegal. I saw commercials on TV. But all the top players, the people who, you know, have been tweeting like crazy since Friday, um, certainly all the, a, a lot of the lawyers who, are involved in this and most of the casino companies they know that that Nevada law bans internet poker that the federal government considers it to be Ill- illegal despite some contrary court decisions um, but the inter- there's just too much money washing in from internet poker whether it's advertising on the TV shows whether it's advertising in poker magazines um, almost every single blog has support from um, online poker sites. You know, some blogs here in town, Steve Fries's blog has a big poker ad on it. Um, a lot of, a lot of people get money from online poker sites and there's this conspiracy of, hey, you know, we're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. This is just too much money. It's too lucrative. We're just going to take it. Well, it may be that these indictments have the potential to start cutting into some of that income and revenue. Um, and it's probably about time that some people in that business realize that it wasn't as, as okay or as acceptable as they thought it was to participate in this questionably legal enterprise. Did I mention uh, this podcast is sponsored by Poker Stars? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I think I'm, I think we're going to leave the internet poker discussion there. There's obviously a lot that we could talk about, um, and we we could continue on this topic for a while. But I think for now, that's a good place to leave it. Um, I, like I said, I don't play internet poker, but on Friday, it was pretty amazing to watch this all unravel. I mean, the, it was one of those things where sort of the internet kind of exploded as people uh, found out about this and started uh, sort of discussing what it meant and and how it might impact them. And it, it's it's always kind of fun, I think, when you see a topic like that and uh, it starts to kind of unfold in front of you. Um, that's one of the fun things about all these new uh, technologies that we have, like Twitter and that kind of thing. So 
Um, I want to I want to move on. Uh, you know, the, the Pulitzers were announced today, and I was very surprised that um, the L.A. Times didn't win an award for their uncovering of the new six billion dollar resort that's coming to the Las Vegas Strip uh, in 2014. I, I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. Um, I'm speaking, of course, of the uh, fabulous SLS Hotel. Um, Chuck, you wrote about this. I, I, I think you and I kind of shared some disbelief. You were even used even stronger terms than I did. Can you share um, what, what the hell I'm talking about? Yeah, well, uh, Sam Nazarian, who's the head of SBE, uh, he uh, showed up on the uh, on the on the newspaper, which he seems to do whenever he has some that he wants to get off his chest. Uh, saying that, uh, amongst other things, SBE has just done some acquisitions. They bought a bunch of bars in town, and therefore they're now the most powerful nightclub operator in uh, L.A. at least. Uh, but in addition to that, he kind of shoehorned in there was his uh, statement that uh, the Sahara isn't closing because they failed. It's they're closing because they're going to uh, refurb the place. And open an SLS hotel there with uh, six restaurants, I think, and two nightclubs, and it's going to open in uh, two years. <laughs> so he said they've they've spent thirty million dollars in design, and their shovels are ready. And I think the 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 money quote was, "If if we were admitting defeat, we would have admitted it." Yeah. So the fun the thing that that. Uh, it just doesn't jive with reality because I think if if he were truly a uh, you know wanted to play the game the way the game is played he would have said the Sahara is closing we're closing it and what's going to come is this as the as the spotlight is on Sahara closing saying trumpeting taking advantage of backing the caboose up to it conjunction junctioning. Sticking the whole thing together and saying, hey, you know, we're going to close this iconic hotel, but we're going to replace it with an SLS, service, luxury, and style hotel here, and blah, 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 and it's going to be great, and have the renderings, and show everybody, and tell everybody, you know, overshadow the bad news with the good news while you've got the spotlight. Didn't do any of that. Right. Did no no real organization of this whole thing. You know, the, the reports that I had been hearing, which led up to... You know, our breaking the news the Sahara was closing was that this place is in dire straits. The the interiors of the place, the mechanicals, everything is falling apart. The and you were just there, was, right? I was just there, yeah. And uh, the uh, you know the HVAC systems are like completely dilapidated. They're they they can't even find parts for them anymore. They're so old. The buildings just leak cold air. It's it it costs so much money to run the place that, you know, it doesn't make, it's impossible for them to close it or to keep it going. So I, I'm, I'm calling supreme bullshit on Sam Nazarian. And I think this is all just him trying to save face right. or put a good spin on it in advance of their, uh, uh, the IPO they're thinking about doing in a couple of years. It's all nonsense. Yeah. I, well, it's a good, it's a good thing they had the shovels ready. I, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't. Where, where were they? I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, this was just the most ludicrous thing I'd ever heard in my life when I read this story. And and you're totally right. If 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 this really was the plan, 
if he had announced it when they said they were closing the hotel, this would have been a big story. It would have been Miracle Man invests in like you know strip economy. This guy's going to pull it off when no one else can, or something along those lines. I mean, it would have been a, it, there was a lot of room for positive spin if yeah. this was true, but it clearly is you know trying to revise history after the fact. Yeah. Well, I know that they did have renderings. I'm pretty sure I saw them a couple of years ago, and they just look kind of luxury and neat. I don't know how much money they invested in, in doing that and how much work they'd done, you know, as far as the architecture goes, but, you know, that had been the plan. Right. I just don't think they're that organized that they knew, like, okay, we're definitely going to, I don't see how they could say this, this will open in 2014. I could totally see them saying, yeah, we've got plans and once the economy turns around and it's a good idea to invest money, we'll, we'll do that. But, you know, I don't know why you would want to open that up in 2014 right now anyway. Doesn't it seem like he, uh, so, like Bill Young of Columbia, Sussex, and we've obviously had others um, over over time in Las Vegas, you know, sort of the outside sucker who, you yeah. know, gets conned into paying yeah. way more than he should. And, you know, yeah. when, at the time, even when the, the economy was really good when he made the deal to buy the place and he paid a pretty high price, um, you know, not Phil Ruffin genius price but but pretty darn um a pretty darn good price um people that i talked to executives in the town told me look you cannot buy and redevelop a property on the strip anymore um you know you might be able to refreshen it and squeeze a few years out but the substantial investment he was talking about made no financial sense so when times were good they were doubting the guy's ability to come through. Other people told me that they thought, you know, hey, this is all just a con, all this stuff. It's to prop up the value of the place to make people think, you know, oh, he really does have serious plans. Maybe we can buy that property and, uh, you know, do something even better or smarter. So, you know, at first it looked like he had made a good deal when Ruffin sold New Frontier for so much more. It looked like this guy had bought it, got a you know, got a got a good deal, but I think a lot of folks have been skeptical skeptical of him um, for a long time. I think you know, by and large, we have been too, um, and rightfully so. So you know, it, Chuck, you called BS on the guy. I think uh, you know, I'm certainly willing to contribute to a unanimous BS. There. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if anybody else is. But. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> Jeff, you know, I think you said this. Uh, when we were talking about this uh, Sahara thing a long time ago that, you know, the primary value in that property is in relationship to city center north, circus, circus center, the Sahara city center, whatever the hell that MGM Kurtzner job across the street was all about. Now that that thing has pretty much been kissed up to the sky, it's interesting how Nazarian has barnacled himself, his company, through the Fontana redevelopment and the M-Life institution at all of their bars and whatnot here to MGM via Bellagio, et cetera. Yeah. You know, like this, it seems like he's trying to like get them to buy Sahara from him or something. I don't know. You you know, I mean, obviously MGM, MGM has a lot of developable real estate uh, at the north end of the strip or redevelopable in the case of uh, Circus Circus. But, um, you know, the company's times have changed and 
Um, you know, certainly their debt makes it unlikely that that would happen in the near future. Um, certainly not in the near future, but maybe not even in the, you know, decade plus future. But you're right. Um, you know, that property does, um, work well. It used to be owned, that Kersner property. MGM bought it from the Bennett estate. Um, that, that they were then going to redevelop or to uh, build a resort. Um, that's the site of the original El Rancho Vegas um, that Dr. Dave um, regularly talks about, the fire um, place. <laughs> but um, the, uh, that site was originally owned by the Bennett family, um, and it would make a nice sister property site for whatever is eventually on the Sahara site. Um, and it's not, you know, who's to say that, you know, he couldn't partner in some way with MGM in the distant future, I mean, to me, you know, he's going to be proven to be a club operator who leaves Las Vegas with his tail between his legs, at least in terms of the casino business. You know, maybe his club venture will be a success. You know, personally, I'm unhappy about the Fontana Lounge being converted, but, you know, I am not a club goer. Um, I did like the Fontana Lounge, and uh, so, um, you know, I don't think that he he will uh, he, that he's going to be end up deve- he's going to end up developing a casino resort with MGM anytime soon. But but if he did, if he proves us wrong and does something on the Sahara site, he'd probably be better off letting MGM manage manage it for him for a fee or for some kind of partnership deal than having the folks he's had managing that property uh, right now. Uh, yeah. it, it was like, you know, I was half expecting him. You're right, Chuck. He has been uh, hitching his wagon up with MGM. Like in the in the next L.A. Times story will be how the, the new resort's designed by the architectural firm of Murren, Murren, and Murren. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's going to be like a, ex, you know, a pocket park extravaganza or something. I mean, it, it uh, I, I, I can't see how this ends up working out the way he's describing it. Um, as you posted today, Chuck, they're selling off the booze at uh, rock bottom prices. Um, (laughs) There's no indication that um, this was ever part of the plan. Uh, And it just seems like such a strange thing to throw out there Uh, as if he didn't think that people would pick up on it. And, um, but you know, honestly, the, the SLS hotel as a name, for a property on the strip, that is the worst. I know he wants to extend his brand and stuff and make it a, a thing, but that's not a joint that goes on the strip. You know, the SLS Hotel, seriously? Come on, that's the worst name ever. You've been to the one in I, L.A., right? Yeah, Jeff? yeah, I've been there. I haven't. You know, it's it's like kind of like a, a tacky-ish M resort. It's oh. not as cool as M. Okay. The only reason to go there, I think... The is restaurant the, is is to to eat, uh, you know, Jose Andres. That's really the only reason why I would go there. Ah. I wouldn't stay there at all. You know, it's got a well, whatever. It's just weird. The layout it doesn't really make a lot of sense and stuff. And it's not that fancy or awesome. The bar and the and the restaurant are great, but the rest of it, no. So how about this? They finally get the Harmon out of mothballs, and that ends up becoming the SLS. That That's would make big, more sense. Yeah, that actually would well, that, make more sense. Kind of if I can throw some big picture stuff out there, you know, in 2007, when it looked like you were going to have that city center north and Fountain Blue and Echelon, it made sense to talk about doing some upscale hotel there. But, you know, in 2011, it's pretty clear that we've reached the limit of the luxury market in Vegas. 
So the only real value of that property is as a budget alternative. You know, since the prices for the nice places have gone down so far, that kind of wipes that out. So it really doesn't have any value. If the room rates start to rise considerably again in the South Strip, then maybe, yeah, it makes sense to run the Sahara as a place with a $60, $80 room night. But I don't see how you ever would justify renovating it and pouring much, so much money into it that you could ask two fifty, three hundred. I just don't see the demand being there. The other thing is, is the Tropicana completely – they moved in and took over, if you think about it. The way that they invested whatever $150, $180 million and completely renovated that property – after Nazarian had bought Sahara. You know, now, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for him to put all that kind of money in there, but if he actually got a gaming license, he actually was involved, he and his people actually had their fingers in, you know, the tables are going to go here, why the hell do we not have the pit underneath the pit things and, you know, lay this thing out the way a casino is supposed to be laid out, you know, and, and, and see how changes in this makes this money happen and this thing happen and change, you know, really being involved in owning and, and maturing and growing and honing and putting the property together, we wouldn't be having this discussion. You know, he was an absentee landlord, basically. Yeah. You know, it just it does not work that way. You can't just walk around the hotel in a hotel in an episode of the hills and think all of a sudden thousands of people are going to show up and want to stay there. It doesn't work that way. You got to get in there. You got to get your hands dirty if you want anything to be a success. And handing it off to a second rate, you know, at, you know, to somebody who's going to operate it, you know, you're not ever going to really learn the business. If you want to be in the long haul, you got to dive in. And he didn't. Yeah. And he failed. I mean, there's a big difference, though. There's a big difference in terms of Tropicana. Onyx bought that place from a, an incredibly depressed, um, bankrupt seller and was able to, um, you know, they bought it for so cheap that even with $180 million in renovation, they can keep the place viable until they make a very lucrative real estate play and sell it later. The difference is that Navarian, Nazarian paid you know, more than half a billion dollars, and there's probably no amount of renovation that he could do that would pencil out to, pay, to allow him to pay back on the initial purchase price and be worth however much he could afford, which probably wasn't much in terms of renovation. So I think Tropicana benefited from the timing of and the the timing of their purchase and the and the incredibly low purchase price. I mean, even with 180 million in, I think they're they're less than 300 and some million dollars in total, um, which is just insanely low given how much. You know, uh, Bill Young played for the, paid for the place a few years earlier, and some other places, including you know the you know the New Frontier and other places, <laughs> sold for. So Onyx had great timing on its side. Nazarian had horrible timing and a lack of assets working against them. Well, so another if thing. If it, I'm sorry. If it didn't make sense then. Why does it make sense now for them well, to close it may have and made pour that se- money it, in? It may have made sense right when he bought it, but he probably had to try and shake down, you know, some 
some more money to do the renovation. He probably it was probably all he could do to finance the purchase. People saying, "Hey, Vegas real estate pretty darn solid. It's been an upward on an upward trajectory." I mean, presumably he didn't have the money to do what he would he wanted to do eventually if he ever did want to do something. And I've questioned that, thinking it may have just been a real estate play. He, um, but but he didn't. He obviously didn't have the money, or and and uh, or didn't want to do it, he, or he would have <laughs> done it right then. He couldn't even afford the filing fee for the gaming license. He put every penny into the, uh, <laughs> into when the people mortgage. do that, when people do that, it makes you wonder about their license ability. Yeah. I mean, I don't have yeah. any direct knowledge, but certainly that business that he's involved in is a business that, uh, you know, might occasionally bump up against the, uh, the, the line of illegality. Right. I saw Sam Nazarian one day. I was on the top, the roof of the Sahara parking lot, taking photos of uh, the back of Fontainebleau, as we fetishists are wont to do from time to time. <laughs> and I was looking at, you know, like the Crown site, and just it was about that era, right? Taking photos up there, and all of a sudden, as if they're just with a friend of mine, there's nobody up there. Two limousines come up onto the roof. Out comes Sam Nazarian from one. And a bunch of other knuckleheads from another one. Trunks open, bags come out. They go from one the goes into the other. There's a whole bunch of meeting and talking and stuff. And then the limousines go and they leave. Wow! <laughs> like, seriously, dude, you own this hotel. Why are you meeting on the roof of the parking garage? <laughs> like, can't you like have, don't you have an office or something? Wow! Wow! <laughs> That's like some Crockett and Tubbs stuff there, you know? <laughs> man. It, it is but, supremely There's odd. a reason why I don't trust this guy, <laughs> if I can, If I can skip back a little bit to what Chuck was saying before, you know, you contrast what Nazarian, Nazarian's position coming from L.A. and the nightclub stuff with Alexia Manigian, who used to work across the street at MGM, obviously has something to prove to people there, has friends in town, has something to prove to them. Tom McCartney, who we hired, who also, you know, has something to prove had working in the industry for a long time and yeah wants to say this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm capable of so way different way different personalities involved there yeah. well Yamanijian was a proven operator um, you know Nazarian proven nightclub operator that's a big difference it is a big difference all right. Well, I don't think any any of us believe that this is going to happen, but if it does, of course, we'll discuss it. Um, for now, I think uh, we can put this one to bed into the uh, into the big circular file in the sky. Um, let's move on and uh, talk about MGM a little bit because uh, there was some news this week. Um, principal, or in its, let's say he's not the majority shareholder; he's the largest shareholder. Um, Kirk Kerkorian, uh, company founder announced that he was going to be stepping down from his place on the board of directors. Um, you know, Kirk Corian is uh, advanced in age. I think he's 93 or something in that neighborhood. Um, he's uh, been involved in Las Vegas gaming for, seems like forever, um, you know, having built some <clears throat> some uh, important properties like the International, which is now the Las Vegas Hilton. Um, the first MGM Grand, which is Bally's, the MGM Grand, and then, of course, MGM built City Center. Um, it, you know, it, a very important person. And it's funny, Dave, you and I both wrote something about this sort of dovetailing against each other, not knowing the other person was writing about it. And it was interesting because I think I was kind of like saying, eh, well, you know, it's, he's obviously an important character, but I don't really see this changing much. Uh, and I think you maybe <clears> – <throat> 
I don't think maybe I, – I wouldn't say you strongly disagree, but I, I got the impression that you think that maybe it is a bigger deal than I, uh, than I put it out to be. What, what's your take on, on Kerkorian and what this means uh, for Las Vegas and for MGM? I think it is just because you've got that continuity of somebody who's involved, been involved in the business since 1967. You know, anytime someone like that is going to be stepping out from direct involvement with the business, I think you're losing some kind of perspective. You know, now I don't know how much use he put that perspective to in 2005, 2007 when he was really getting over leverage with the city center, but you know, it is really interesting to see. Kind of to see the faces change, you know, and a lot of the folks who were with him in the early days of the international and MGM have long since departed from the scene. So he's really kind of the last uh, holdover there. I mean, I think one of the things I wrote in there is if these guys at MGM could convince that board to build City Center, then they could pretty much convince them of anything. Um, so it make you know, it, I never got the impression that that the MGM board was putting the brakes on what management wanted to do. No, you know, at the time they were giving him more and more money because it looked so incredibly smart because real estate prices were going up. They had people lined up to get involved with, you know, buying the condo units because the condo units everywhere were just increasing in price and everybody wanted to get on board in 2006, 2007 and it looked like a genius thing and they thought they were stupid for not spending more money on it. In fact, they increased the amount of money they were spending in city center then to make it even more luxurious and add more condo space. So, yeah, I mean, the board agreed with them on that. I'm, I'm, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say that, you know, the decisions that, you know, Kerkorian's had a number of bad decisions over the last, um, you know, few years, um, dating back to, and, and certainly we have to look at this with, you know, it's easy to look at it with 2020 hindsight. You know, the, the, the condo decision at City Center proved to be the biggest failing of that project. Um, you know, maybe, you know, 15 years from now, it won't look like it was that big of a failing. But back then, you're right. Dr. Dave mentioned how people thought of it then. MGM made a big killing on Signature. Um, the people who bought those signature condos weren't, didn't end up very happy, but certainly the people who, who or the company that sold them, they were very happy. Um, preliminary sales figures for um, other strip um, condo hotels were very good. Um, early sales deals with Palms Place and others. And, and half of the operators, um, whether it was MGM, whether it was George Maloof, whether it was um, the Venetian, Las Vegas Sands, you know, and, and, and even Station had their own ideas for um, condominiums, whether it was at Red Rock or in that big project they wanted to develop where the Wild Wild West is. And another one near where Palace Station is. Everybody thought condos, high-rise condos in and around the Strip and in the Valley were going to be a gold mine. Everybody gives you a big chunk of money. The banks will, will give you the rest, and it enables you to, enables you to build the project. Um, it seemed like genius. But there were some naysayers in town at the time, Bill Boyd, Steve Wynn, um, and Caesars, or well, then it was Harris. They did not get involved in, in the condo craziness. Wynn told me, he said, how are you going to ever redevelop this your property when you have you know um, a couple hundred other property owners sharing your sharing your project site um, and Bill Boyd when I talked to him about that he said 
he he agreed with Wynn, although he said that he reserved you know the right to change his mind if it worked out for other competitors, but he didn't initially plan it at echelon. Um, I think that um, that when you look at what Kerkorian did, so city center was a problem. His Ford Motor investment was a problem. He had the problem with the private investigator who was working with him in terms of his uh, paramour, um, Lisa Bonder, the former tennis player. Um, he had um, all kinds of things going on. Um, but, you know, it wasn't long. I think it was 2007. He had expressed interest in maybe taking MGM private. Right. He wanted to buy more shares. And right. then when the, when, the, when the value of the stock collapsed, um, he's had to sell off significant chunks of his ownership stake, probably, you know, for estate planning purposes or otherwise. Um, and so, and you've seen him have to make some other sort of, they're not desperate moves, but, you know, just to sort of make sure that he's left in the, the, the multi-billionaires club. And so, (laughs) so, so what it means for MGM into the future, this decision last week, I mean, he still owns 29%. Um, he still is going to be talking to Murren all the time. You know, the board rep, you know, he has a couple members of Tracinda on the board. So I'm not sure that that really matters all that much. I just think it's more of an indication of his willingness to sort of gradually extricate himself from the MGM position. Um, I think the big news is going to be when he sells his stake down from 29% to some level where he's just like an institutional investor, um, one of those, you know, um, mutual fund companies or whatever that owns five or nine percent. Um, when he gets down to that level, I think then it will truly be a company like most of the others that are professionally run, um, with no ownership group able to dictate the company's future. Kerkorian with 29% still is very close to the level where he, um, holds tremendous sway in the company. I'm also curious, you know, if it has any impact, um, Man, I gotta stop saying I'm also curious. I'm curious about man. That's like my my death knell. I mean, literally every interview I ever do, it's like I'm curious about this. I'm curious about that. Sorry, um, <laughs> sorry. Sidebar. Um, I'm I'm wondering the impact that it might have on Jim Mern because you know Mern's in some ways been a, been the head of the company through a controversial time, right? I mean, the company had a lot of trouble opening City Center. To his credit, he navigated the um, financial situation they were in, um, I think, as well as anyone could. But clearly, he he has presided over the company through a difficult time and he obviously has a big supporter in Kerkorian. As Kerkorian's involvement fades, is Murin – does he have a target on his back? Is he going to be able to continue to run that company if things don't improve markedly for MGM? I would say yes, because I just don't, as I alluded to in the comment on the blog post, I think a lot of the things that the shareholders and big investors are worried about are not the things that we're worried about and vice versa. You know, they're not really that concerned with a lot of the stuff that's going on operationally, and they're more concerned with the big picture. He was able to get some relief from the debt and kind of put that off by two years or so. So we'll see. You know, two years from now, stuff picks up. Uh, he'll be golden if it doesn't pick up. Either he'll be out or we'll have to get another postponement for that debt. So I think a lot of it's more tied into that and kind of the behind-the-scenes money moves than anything that we would see happening in the actual casinos. 
A couple things that are interesting about Murren. Um, you know, we've talked many times about his seeming indifference to the gambling part of the business, the casino, and maybe even, um, Hunter, you'll appreciate this, his lack of curiosity about uh, <laughs> his competitors' joints. And, uh, and you know, I think he's he, he has set the company up to sell its hotel um, and, you know, building expertise to a bunch of foreign operations um, and and that may prove to be a lucrative thing. The company's not putting a lot of money into it, but stands to reap some amount. I think it's relatively small amount of money. But I think the deal they made just recently in Macau um, is going to give them, um, you know, instead of having to sell ten percent of their four of their fifty percent stake and take their position down to forty, now they get fifty one percent clear control of that Macau casino and the ability um, more than likely to develop additionally there and add to that spigot of cash in the world's best market. So, you know, Jim Moran has some things going for him. Um, I'm not sure. I think Terry Lanny and Moran both shared the idea that, you know, doubling down on Las Vegas when other companies were saying, hey, we like sort of not being too focused on any one market. MGM was like, are you crazy? Look how good Las Vegas is. And in the middle of the last decade, it was. Um, and that benefited them and it allowed them you know, to really exploit their deals by Mirage Resorts and later Mandalay Resort Group. But you know that concentration on the Strip has been their partial undoing over the last couple of years. Um, so, so much for that company depends on the resurgence, the rebound of Las Vegas. Um, and when you read their presentations they make to analyst conferences, um, you can see, you know, it, it all, I mean, obviously Macau's important, these peripheral things are important, but there's almost nothing that's as important as a prospective Las Vegas rebound. If they do rebound, um, Jim Murren will look great. Um, and so will the company. If Las Vegas does not rebound or if there's a double dip um, or, you know, some big catastrophe in the travel market, um, I, you know, he probably won't hold on. Um, he is going to be blamed for that concentration of that company's assets on the strip if Las Vegas uh, takes another downturn. So his interests and Las Vegas interests are very closely intertwined. I have a question for you guys regarding the uh, Pansy Ho thing. Uh, if I remember correctly from reading the release about the, the purchase and the realignment of percentages in Macau, she bought $300 million worth of MGM stock. Debt. Yeah, bonds, Debt. I think, yeah. It was bonds, so it wasn't stock. Okay. Correct. All right. Good. Well, then forget my question. <laughs> well, I, you, you're alluding to this story, which is the, what, I, what I think we were going to talk about next, was sort of this realignment of MGM's investment in Macau. They had this vehicle with yeah. Pansy Ho, MGM Paradise, which owns that casino. It was a 50-50 uh, arrangement, and going forward, MGM is going to take their ownership percentage up to 51%. The company is going to IPO, uh, but the shares from the IPO are going to come out of Pansy Stake, who is then going to take some of the proceeds and reinvest it in uh, MGM's bonds, um, including any over-allotment that might come out of the IPO. So, you know, the end result, assuming this all goes forward, 
MGM ends up with control. They can, um, and be, 51% also means that they can change the way the accounting works on their books. It's going to look better for them financially. Um, cause it's no, it's, it's now basically going into a different category. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's obviously an incredibly lucrative market and sh- their affiliation with her has, has been, um, you know, a little bit controversial. I mean, it was the, re- one of the reasons that they extricated themselves from New Jersey. Uh, so it is an interesting story. It seems like, uh, a, a, a good move for them. D- anyone disagree with that? No, I, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it, you know, it, it, I don't, <clears throat> I, it's they, they them being able to take control, and um, and as and also, it seems like their share is is rising. I mean, they haven't been as competitive in that market as some of their other American comrades, but um, it seems like they're doing better in Macau, and uh, you know, assuming that that'll continue. Is this I mean, possibly I, I, Dubai Infinity World all over again? In what in what way? Just getting somebody to sink a bunch of money into the company and they're if, not going to get a lot of value. If in if so, like they're like the best salespeople on the planet, right? I mean, they they, were, they sold a bunch of the company to Dubai, who gave them a bunch of money, and they got yeah. screwed. And I don't. And Pansy, obviously, you know, Pansy is is going to have a larger role in her father's company, and so her situation you would seem if she didn't do something like this is getting more complicated um, as she has sort of. Uh, in different interests there that uh, may may not always line up in the same direction. But you know, there's another Macau story before we close out for the day that that I thought was interesting, which is um, talking about SGM uh, SJM and this woman um, Angela Long, I think is how you pronounce the last name. She's um, you know the youngest of Stanley Ho's four wives, and according to this Wall Street Journal story, she's going to be basically taking over. Um, running of SGM, which I think is really interesting because, uh, you know, if anyone else has something to add, but I, I don't know anything about her. I mean, we know a fair amount about, um, you know, the, the people running Wind Resorts and the people running Las Vegas Sands, but SJM is, is the largest operator there. Um, she's going to be running this huge casino empire, and as far as I know, she's a virtual unknown. And and it, of course we don't really know the interfamily uh, um, relationships well enough. Other, you know, we we've certainly seen a little bit in terms of their recent dispute. Um, some of you know some people I've talked to suggest that it could be that even though um, this wife, one of the Stanley Ho wives, will be the figurehead at the top, and maybe even um, a partial power that the two the two ho kids with their own concessions or half concessions Lawrence Ho and uh with and and Pansy Ho will really be the powers behind the throne exerting um a little more interest on the biggest concessionaire um in Macau. It's just interesting to see that power sh- potentially shift there given given that company's share in the market and uh, the number of facilities they have and um it, it uh it's interesting to see what'll happen all right so oh go ahead when, when you look at macau and i always use the phrase spigot um for the the tremendous amount of cash that flows into there from you know china hong kong and the rest of uh the rest of asia so much money comes in, and so that's why um, that's the primary reason why I like 
um, MGM's decision. It got it keeps them at fifty one percent of that that joint venture's share of that water or the cash that's flowing through the spigot. When they expand and open up a new property, it will be more. And the difference is that that they've already spent the money for that one property. They're they're not planning. You know, Las Vegas Sands has invested such a tremendous amount in Macau. Um, but really, when you look at the amount they've invested in properties, um, they're getting a, re- a good return on that investment. But the investment, um, but the the number of tables and gaming positions probably isn't matched by their share of the win. Um, and MGM is much closer to win resorts in terms of the bang they get from the, for their buck. Um, and, you know, Chuck, you may have a, a, a better idea about why that is, but it seems certainly the perception in Macau that win is the, the nicest, best place in town um, persists. But I think there's the growing perception that MGM is a pretty good place as well. Um, what, why is that? That those operators have been so successful at sort of playing uh, or, or or making each gaming position um, produce more money than their competitors. Well, I think the location has a lot to do with it, and the offerings in the hotel, at least in terms of stuff on the peninsula, uh, you know, those are the best joints in town for the most part. You know, the 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 sands. Added a hotel years after it had opened, you know, and it and it's primarily reserved for high rollers and invitation stayers only, um, which is sort of what Encore uh, Macau is is doing too. the The big thing is the Venetian is gigantic. It's huge. It's massive, but it still sort of runs on the same kind of. Uh, operating mechanism that the Las Vegas ones do too. They're very, very focused on conventions and they also do tons of the Kotai jet play, you know, and the people coming in from over the bridge. But the thing also to know is that the, uh, the junkets play a gigantic role. You know, there were probably three or four quarters in a row. Uh, I think, Probably around 2008, 2009, where uh, this is before City of Dreams opened, that the Crown, then named Crown, now called Altira, uh, was the leading winner. It won all the money because they had a lucrative agreement with a junket operator that was bringing in the absolute top of the players. So whoever has control of the junkets, you know, they're going to do a lot, a lot of business. And I think players tend to like the win for the same reason that a lot of you know, mom and pops and, and folks like us like the win as well. It's a comfortable, good, groovy uh, atmosphere with good dining, good, sh- great shopping, and fantastic resort amenities. So that's that's I think that's going to win for sure. Bigger's not better. Better is better. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. I think that's a good place to leave it this time around. We're going to do our uh, Sherbet's endorsement segment. Um, this is our opportunity to share with you, the audience, something that uh, we might f- think that you find interesting. It doesn't have to be gambling related, but it certainly can be. Um, Jeff, you got something for us today? 
You know, I'm going to sort of reprise one of my uh, past things. I uh, I pimped last summer. I pimped the uh, HBO series Boardwalk Empire, um, which you know I think is proven to be a, a fantastic uh, show. And I watched last night the premiere of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, and I'm usually not a big fantasy fan. But um, this is a, a very, very good show. Um, I love the pace of the show. They didn't make people wait for a lot of uh, um, eventful uh, things to take place. Um, so it just premiered this week, so you won't get way behind if you you know, watch it on a, a replay or on demand or something like that. But uh, don't get left behind on this show. It looks like a really good one. I, I agree. I watched it last night also, and I, I enjoyed it. I haven't, you know, it's based on a series of books. I have not read them. Neither have um, I. But uh, I, I liked it. it I, with something like that that's, you know, moved over from a book, you always wonder if you're going to be able to figure it out without knowing all the backstory and the, you know, more intricate kind of explanation that you get out of a book. But I found it easy to follow. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the next episode, so I couldn't agree more. All right, Chuck, what about you? My... Sure bet is total wine and more in Summerlin. Uh, I went on a trip a couple weeks ago with my friend Rich, who does the Wino Tripping website, and the whole point of the trip was just to go check out all sorts of booze, uh, booze, booze, and booze, primarily wine with a couple other things. And um, I let him; he pretty much set the agenda of all the places we we're going to go. I, which was great. It's fun to like not be in control. It's always being the guy who's like people always ask for advice for. I basically just drove the car and we went to all these different places that I never would have went to, and ended up out there at the Total Wine Joint in Summerlin. From the outside, it looks like an annex at Caesar's Palace. The inside is the most astonishing array of alcohol you've ever seen in your entire life. Uh, it, it's just, the, the, Believe it or not, I did find some holes in their collection, which I wish they had. But, but uh, if you're looking for wine or any kind of booze or alcohol or weird stuff or fun stuff, Total Wine, it is located, I think, on uh, Rampart Boulevard in the Boca Park uh, shopping center out there. I had a great time. I loved it. I brought home a whole bunch of bottles of tequila, and I'm still drinking them. So, so did you actually drink any wine? I mean, all the reports I saw, you were drinking beer while Rich was taking you to wine places. Yeah, I had some wine. I had a little bit of wine. I'm not really a big wine drinker, so you know, I would taste. I would taste a lot of everything, but uh, I was I was trying to remain reasonably sober because I had to drive. Yeah, so it's a good strategy. So, so total yeah. wine. Total wine has an outlet in Henderson as well. Okay. Cool. I've never been. I've you know I've heard people talking about it. I got to go one of these days. I'm also looking forward to um, to Rich's write up of your trip or your write up or whoever's going to write about it because it sounds like you guys did some cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Dave, what about you? Okay, I've got a, some, something a little bit off the beaten path here this time. It's the Nevada Southern Railway, which is a little railway excursion line that runs out of Boulder City, and there's. In addition to it being a little railroad that you get to ride, there's also reenactors of some kind of period from the Wild West era. I don't know exactly when. And kind of the, there's this vague sort of shootout thing that happens that I didn't totally understand. <laughs> but uh, they started out by shooting guns at each other while they're dressed up in cowboy stuff and they ended up throwing rocks. And don't 
didn't also two different guys were trying to run for mayor and were campaigning, but don't don't claim to totally understand the totality of the Nevada Southern Railway experience. But if you ever want to do this, you get a chance to ride an old Union Pacific train, go down to Boulder City. It's 600 Yucca Street in Boulder City, and there's a pretty neat website, too, that's about what you would expect. And you can see a little slice of Southern Nevada life that doesn't have anything to do with casinos. Well, you know, Chuck's going to be the next mayor of Las Vegas. <laughs> if, <laughs> if recent recent polls are to be believed. Um all right, great. Um, I'm going to do a couple little quick hits here. One, one is um, just letting people know about a, a, a Kickstarter project. Kickstarter is a website that lets people fund um, interesting projects. And there's a movie about the construction desk that took place um, at City Center during its construction that was made. You know, you, People may remember The Las Vegas Sun won a Pulitzer Prize for a series of articles based on um, these uh, these deaths. And so – Personally, I'm really curious to see this film, and Kickstarter is a way for people that are interested in a project to contribute before the project's actually completed, uh, and I'll include a link in the show notes. Um, so, you know, it's a way for these people to finish their movie. Sounds interesting to me. Um, secondly, um, for those that are interested in Macau, we were just talking about Macau. It, it seems like Google Maps has updated their aerial photography of Macau uh, just recently in the last month or so. Um, so if you're interested in Macau and you want to see some of the progress on Kotai and elsewhere, uh, you should check out Google Maps. I mean, it's got a fully completed Encore, uh, a completed uh, <clears throat> a City of Dreams, Venetian, all the stuff that's going on in those adjacent sites. It's pretty neat uh, to be able to see updated maps, so I would recommend that. Um, and last but not least, not least, if you can't make it total wine, Sahara has a, <laughs> a deal on booze. <laughs> Just ve- uh, visit uh, Vegas Tripping for um, some photographic evidence and uh, price list. Hey, Hunter. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that um, Kickstarter project for the movie about the uh, city center construction yeah. project. Um, a cu- one thing – well, two things. First, um, that – MGM can't be really happy about that project. Uh, they probably would be looking for a way to negative kickstart that. <laughs> um, but but secondly, you know, I, I certainly have been known to uh, um, point out uh, my past uh, predictions approved right, and I hope that I will occasionally point out uh, things that I've predicted um, incorrectly. Um, and, and, and that is one thing, the uh, city center construction death problem um i happened to be at the sun at the time but i wasn't you know very involved only tangentially involved um in that project that won the uh the big pulitzer but what i would say is that 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 is an issue that i overlooked uh my during my entire time here in las vegas i mean i've been covering construction of projects um dating back to 1999 and 2000 and almost every single time a resort was built, um, you know, there somebody would die during the construction of those projects. And, you know, I mean, when I talk to people, they would say, yeah, we usually lose an average of one, maybe two or maybe zero, but an average of one on every one of these projects. Um, 
And, you know, City Center had a bunch of towers. It was so much larger in scope than these other ones. So as the deaths mounted on City Center, I, I just sort of thought, well, it's a factor of how big it is. Um, it's really not that far out of the norm. And it may not, I mean, it really may not have been that far out of the norm, but um, the series of stories proved um, that there were a lot of problems with the construction companies and the way they were run and the training and the safety measures and all that kind of stuff. So it was a great story, but I feel like I um, really sort of blew it for, you know, almost a decade um, when I had the opportunity to sort of look in that at that issue in more depth and yet just sort of, you know, took other folks' word for it and believed it and just thought, you know, I mean, and it's very crass to say this, but, um, you know, it's something that has been said to me that it, you have to break some eggs to, you know, make an omelet. And, you know, it's horrible that that would, you know, you would use that to refer to somebody dying. But that was really sort of the attitude in town, and I bought into it. And I'm really sorry that I did, but I'm glad that um, Alexandra Burzon and um, her cohorts did such a fine job in that story. And I hope that it continues to um, contribute to more safety on those kind of projects in the future. No doubt about it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping we get a chance to see the film because I think it could be, could be interesting. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for being here. Let me quickly go around the table and you can tell people where they can find you. Dr. Dave, where can people find you? You can find me on Two Way Hard 3 and dgschwartz.com. Dr. Chuck, where can people find you? People can find me at fulltillpoker.com. Dr. Jeff, what about you? And I'm only a naturalist healing doctor, um, <laughs> but I can be found also on Rate Vegas's blog, Two Way Hard 3, and on Twitter at Simpson Las Vegas. Yeah, and Jeff, you were on Nevada Week in Review this past Friday. I uh, just saw it earlier today. Did a great job. Um, very much. I'm a, I'm not a doctor, but I do play one on TV. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, I couldn't resist. Um, you can find me at ratevegas.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. 